Welcome to episode three of The Quantified Body. I'm your host, Damien Blinkinsop. When we think about health risk and reducing it, most of us are thinking about cancer, heart disease, and strokes. Autoimmune and other chronic health conditions aren't top of mind because they don't tend to get the same attention in the media and have much smaller research budgets currently. But if you look at the numbers, you are statistically much more likely to face autoimmune problems in your lifetime than heart disease or cancer or stroke. In the US at any one time, it's estimated there are about 9 million cases of cancer, 22 million cases of heart disease, and between 23 and 50 million cases of autoimmunity. That depends on which organization you're looking at. The low number is conservative as it's based on a pretty rigid definition of what autoimmunity is and having a substantial amount of research already done to prove it. So it's much more likely that it's the higher number of 50 million or potentially higher than that. Autoimmune disease is becoming a growing collection of diseases as researchers identify more and more diseases which have autoimmune mechanisms behind them. Diseases assumed to be included are big names like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and arthritis, to name the best known. I'm guessing that you did not miss the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge to raise awareness and funding for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. 30,000 people have this condition in the U.S., which is kind of small compared to the other numbers we've been talking about. It's, it's one of these diseases that falls into the 50 million bracket of autoimmune diseases. But because of the small numbers, it took a viral campaign to bring attention to ALS, because most people haven't really heard of it. But if we came to understand autoimmune diseases as having a common mechanism, like mitochondrial health, for example, that could quickly change how we look at treating all of them, the budgets allocated, and progress we make with them. Today's guest is currently running clinical trials to evaluate the impact on autoimmune disease of a simple nutrient-dense protocol. It's a protocol that enabled the researcher herself to recover from one of the worst autoimmune diseases, multiple sclerosis. The basis for her protocol was supporting recovery and repair of the mitochondria. Dr. Terry Wilds was diagnosed with secondary progressive multiple sclerosis in 2003. This is the irreversible form of MS, and by 2007, the disease had progressed to the point where she was restricted to a wheelchair and unable to walk. But in 2007, she turned her condition around, taking her first steps within three months after starting a new protocol and riding a bike again before the end of the year. Hers is the only known recovery from secondary progressive MS and has been based on insights she took from published research on mice mitochondrial health, amongst other things. Dr. Wiles is also now the author of the Amazon bestseller, The Wiles Protocol, How I Beat progressive MS using paleo principles and functional medicine, which describes the ins and outs of her protocol and how to execute it. In this interview, we dig into the details of her current clinical trial, some of the biomarkers she tracks, and her views on the links between mitochondria, autoimmune, and broader chronic health issues, and how nutrient-based treatments can work to heal these conditions. As usual, to get the show notes, to download the MP3 of the interview, get the transcript and links to everything we mention on the show, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episode three. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In The Quantified Body, we explore this promise 
to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. So, Dr. Walls, you had a diagnosis of secondary progressive multiple sclerosis, which is the worst case, as I understand it. Could you explain briefly what that diagnosis means? Most people, up to 80% of folks with multiple sclerosis are diagnosed with relapsing remitting. And in that phase, there is a episodic worsening of disease called a relapse and improvement called a remission. Most people with relapsing remitting uh, will, within 15 years, convert to secondary progressive, so they have no more spontaneous improvements. They simply are experiencing the gradual steady decline. In my case, I was diagnosed in 2000, but within three years, uh, I had already transitioned to that steady decline and was in that secondary progressive phase. Right. So in a typical situation, is there any remission from the secondary progressive stage? Uh, I don't believe any have been reported other than mine in the scientific literature. You know, there are some lay books talking about improvements, but if you're looking for a case report. Uh, I'm the only one who's reported improvements uh, like that. Great, great. And so do you consider yourself in remission today? I'm very, very clear this is not uh, a remission because I'm not in the disease phase that has remission. And the fact that I've improved to such a dramatic degree really means that the current understanding for multiple sclerosis has some gaps in it because this uh, would be considered not possible. And we've done clinical trials to show that, in fact, this level of improved function appears to be quite possible in others as well. It's not just me. So today, what symptoms do you still have, or do you have any? So, and you know, I'm not as strong as a 58-year-old woman uh, my age, so I can stand easily to give a lecture for an hour. But if you ask me to stand for two hours, that will be difficult. That's still fatiguing. I can go out and jog a mile and a half. Because I'm continuing to improve, I anticipate that that will continue to improve. My strength continues to improve remarkably, but probably is not quite as strong as you'd expect for a normal, fully healthy, athletic 58-year-old woman. What I want to stress, the key point is that I'm continuing to steadily improve. Great, great. That's great to hear. I'm really glad to hear that. What are the areas that you're targeting? You just mentioned your clinical trials. What are they targeting? I heard like one explanation was around your latest study was clinical trials are to prove the effectiveness of a nutrient-dense paleo diet to reduce autoimmune yeah. disease symptoms. Is that kind of the best definition? I'd say it's really pretty close. I am very interested in diet and lifestyle. And I study that for traumatic brain injury. And I'm studying that for multiple sclerosis. We're writing grants to study it in other disease states as well, such as fibromyalgia and Parkinson's disease. So we'll see if we can get other people interested in funding it as well. Great, great. So right now it's very multiple sclerosis. Right. That's where I have the relationship and the funding sources is with a foundation that should be interested in multiple sclerosis-related research. Yeah. So the first study was, was a pilot study with about 20 people. Could you give us a quick quick update on where where your studies are? We had initial funding to study 20 people using basically diet, some targeted vitamins, meditative practice, exercise, and electrical stimulation of muscles. 
because this was such a radically new concept, the Institutional Review Board, which is the safety committee that monitors research, told us that we could enroll 10, run the study with the 10, give them safety data, and then come back and enroll the second 10. So we've published our results from the first 10 that we got enrolled, and that came out in the Journal of Ambulatory, let's see, the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine. You know, and the big challenge was finding other scientists who felt comfortable reviewing an intervention that was so broad-based. Right. Yeah. So that took us a bit of time to find the appropriate reviewers. Okay. It's because, I mean, normally they're trying to control the variables, so it's only changing one thing, but you've got many interventions stacked together there. Right, right. And that's a very unusual study design. Uh, what we were really testing was, could people implement the same very complex regimen that I did, and could it be done safely? That's called the safety feasibility study. Yeah. So you want to know if people can do it, that you don't hurt anyone. And because these are small studies, all you're really hoping for is to have a trend in the favorable direction, because it, it's small enough you don't expect to see statistically significant results. Okay, great. And you have another study on the way now. So we have actually a couple studies I'm involved with. Because the first study used diet, vitamins, meditation, exercise, e-stim, we wanted to begin to break apart the study to see how important those various components were. So I have one study that's looking just at the exercise e-stim portion of the intervention and another study that we're recruiting furiously for right now, which is a diet and lifestyle interventions. We're really just focusing on teaching them a paleo diet that's been structured in a very specific way to maximize nutrient density. Okay, right. So kind of summarize what the WILDS protocol is. How would you summarize it? This is really a very intense nutrition. I stress vegetables, green leafy vegetables, sulfur-rich vegetables in the cabbage, onion, mushroom family, yep. and deeply colored. So if you're a guy or you're a very tall lady, that's nine cups a day. If you're petite, it's going to be much smaller, perhaps in the four to six cup range. And the protein is sufficient protein, like 6 to 12 ounces of meat a day. In the first level, we can do it for vegetarians and vegans. And then as we advance, I have some additional requirements. Okay. Uh, and then move the diet to a more ketogenic diet for the more advanced persons. In terms of advanced, do you mean people who are dealing with the worst severity of symptoms? Well, we're testing in my clinical trial to see if the ketogenic version is more effective than the standard walls version. So I don't have the answer yet. Okay. In my book, I talk about why ketogenic diets may be beneficial and the research that's going on in the ketogenic diet world around seizures, chronic headaches, schizophrenia, Parkinson's, and my research in MS. There's also a lot of research with cancer and ketogenic diet. This is a very, very exciting area, and it may be another decade before we have a full answer. But I'm thinking for those who are highly motivated, highly interested in the ketogenic diet, there are health benefits, but I talk about the potential risks of the ketogenic diet as well. Just much, much harder to maintain really excellent nutrition while in ketosis over the long term. Is that because you're limited in the vegetables? Uh, okay. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. You can eat. Yeah, All right. absolutely. Okay, great. Well, so, you know, talking about your book a bit, like the Waltz Protocol, it's positioned a bit more broadly than just multiple sclerosis. Could you talk oh, a little, yeah. like, who are you aiming at with the Waltz Protocol and the book? And What I've discovered in my clinics time and time again is that by using the Waltz Protocol to restore the health of the cells, the health of the person over the next three years steadily improves. They often need fewer and fewer drugs. Weight falls off without being hungry. Uh, blood sugars, blood pressures normalize, often to the point where no medication is needed. The most immediate people are going to benefit are the folks with autoimmunity or folks with a lot of pain and the docs can't yet make a diagnosis. But we're also observing that people with medical problems uh, requiring medication often find that their medication needs steadily decline. The mental health problems also often steadily improve anxiety, depression, irritability, focus, autism, and other neurological disorders. We have many, many folks with Parkinson's who've reached out to say that their symptoms uh, have dramatically lessened. And, of course, the folks with MS who are telling us how much they've improved as well. Right, right. So, I mean, that was my next question. Like, where are you getting the most feedback from in society as you spread the Wells Protocol and, and the word about it? Multiple sclerosis, and then Parkinson's, probably next. Diabetes, obesity, third. And then fourth, I would say, I have so many folks with a wide variety of autoimmune problems uh, mm. that are telling us that symptoms have been markedly reduced. And, you know, many of these autoimmune diseases I've not encountered before. So it just lets you know the diversity of autoimmune problems, so inflammatory bowel right. disease, I think there are 160, well, over 160 oh, classified. You know, we keep adding many, many more every year. Yeah. I would not be surprised if in the next two decades we begin to rethink our autoimmunity to the point where it is a matter of nearly every chronic disease having some level of autoimmune component. Uh, that's my prediction. We'll see that turns out to be the case. Yes, that's very, very interesting. So moving kind of away from health issues and also a bit more generally, on Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Radio, you mentioned that some of your research staff have been using the protocol. I think you asked that they all follow the protocol so that they understand it. And that while they're all healthy, they've noted some positive impacts as well. Yeah, it, actually, it's really interesting. So students come volunteer in my lab and I ask them to fill out the forms and follow the diet for a couple of weeks just so they get a sense of what our subjects have to do. And so these young kids, they're healthy, robust, you think at the peak of their game, and they nearly always discover that their attention improves, concentration, memory, sleep improves, mood improves. Several kids had their chronic headaches go away, and a couple other realized that some of their family's health issues could be addressed then by diet and lifestyle, and they've had a uh, really nice, dramatic impact, favorable impact on their extended family. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear. So, I mean, we've been talking a lot about acute conditions before, but in terms of long-term disease prevention risks and aging and potentially you've been talking about cognitive performance uh, improvements, less headaches and so on, do you think there's a lot of application for these areas as well beyond you know the acute illnesses where it started? This will be very beneficial for chronic health problems. You know, certainly 
uh, in my book, I talk about autoimmunity a great deal. Then I acknowledge that my other medical issues that we don't think of traditionally as autoimmune also seem to be dramatically helped. Weight issues, diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol problems, and then you know mental health and the traumatic brain injuries that I follow up and take care of. That's a very broad area. In, yeah. in terms of the areas that you see it positively impacting, are there any similarities in, in the issues? Or like, what are the underlying mechanics that you think, the way you're looking at it today, are being addressed? And well, I'm looking at the health of the cells and the effectiveness of the mitochondria. And so I'm looking at the nutritional needs of these cells and how to provide them using food uh, because I think food is safer than supplements and probably much more effective, frankly. And so, looking at the mitochondria, you need basically all of the B vitamins. And you're going to need minerals, magnesium, zinc, sulfur. You need a lot of fats, the omega-3, omega-6 fats, the saturated fats, cholesterol fats, to make healthy membranes. Then you have to protect the mitochondria from things like zinc, mercury, lead, and some of the compounds that we take a lot of, uh, like antibiotics that are tough on our mitochondria. And by maximizing cellular nutrition, then we start much more effectively having our epigenetics factors set. We have basically more efficiency in all of the biochemical processes in our cells, which over time, will lead to healthier organs and, of course, healthier persons. Some things go away very quickly, like the fatigue, the brain fog. Often that, that's dramatically better within 12 weeks. Things where you have to replace incorrectly made proteins, that may take one to seven years, mm. depending on what organ in the body you're trying to rebuild. Great. So do you have a theory as to why mitochondria behind autoimmune disease you know, there's this whole variety of issues taking place in the body. Do you have some kind of underlying mechanism you have in mind as to how this works and how the damage is caused to the mitochondria in the first place? I think there are many, many reasons our mitochondria can get damaged. The toxic load that we're all exposed to continues to climb every year. And many of these toxins will have negative impacts on some of the proteins involved in the mitochondria, in how the mitochondria manages the electron transport chain. So that's one problem, straight up. Uh, just direct toxic effects to the mitochondria. These toxins, in addition to the direct toxic effects, will interact with the DNA, putting adducts on the DNA, and causing certain parts of our DNA to be red and other parts to be silenced and not red. So that shifts how my DNA would have been red by the presence of these toxins. Uh-huh. And that changes our biochemistry. Are you referring to, is that working through methylation processes? Methylation is one of the processes. That I'm, and I will also predict that we don't really understand all the ways that epigenetics impact our DNA. Okay. Methylation is one way. Changing the histone protein is another way. And we may find that there are even additional ways that we've not yet unraveled. 
but clearly toxins are interacting with their DNA, turning genes on and off without changing the actual DNA sequence. So we have lots of toxins that are doing this. Yeah. And some of those toxins, by the way, include the drugs that we take and the antibiotics and the things that have gotten into our groundwater and, of course, all the food, the indoor environment, uh, et cetera. Great, great. So in terms of, I think for people at home to, to understand is like, if the mitochondria are behind the problems we're encountering, why is there such a wide different variety of conditions, you know, take Parkinson's? This is really something I talked about in my book and that conventional medicine over hundreds of generations of stocks, we've been classifying diseases based on how the history, the symptoms, physical exam, and then more recently, laboratory testing. And we did all of that before we understood the molecular basis of how these diseases evolved. What is startling to physicians and scientists, uh, medical students as well, that now that we begin to understand the molecular basis of these diseases and what's going on at the molecular level, cellular level, we're seeing that the diseases look more and more alike that there's often inappropriate inflammation with the body attacking self or having too many inflammation molecules. We have mitochondria that are not generating energy appropriately with too many free radicals being generated, causing early aging. We often have evidence of excessive toxic exposure and toxins stored in the fat and the tissues worsening the production of uh, inflammatory molecules. We often have problems with the gut, with the wrong bacteria mixed living in our bowels, creating a leaky gut, allowing for contents within the bowels to slip into the bloodstream, uh, bringing along with them perhaps some bacterial particles, incompletely digested foods, all of which will create, again, more inflammation in the body. And what is so startling is we see those same core abnormalities, whether or not the person has schizophrenia, depression, diabetes, MS, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia. You may see them to slightly a different mix, but those same less effective cellular processes are uh, present to varying degrees in nearly every chronic medical problem, mental health problem, neurological problem, or autoimmune problem. Yeah. Do you think that the pattern it shows up in each person is probably down to genetics and epigenetics? Well, I'd say the pattern is maybe 5% uh-huh. or less epigenetics. The rest, the 95%, is due to how the environment, mm. and that includes diet, activity level, toxin exposure, stress level probably is the big four, then infection exposures, family relationships, social bonding, social networks, all of that will interact probably through the person's epigenetics, epigenome to some degree, directly to toxins in the cells uh, and nutritional deficiencies to the cells themselves to another degree. All of those are factors. And because we're all unique with our unique DNA, so even if I had a twin sister, as we share the same DNA, grew up in the same house, we'd still have differences 
in our environment that would be enough to affect our genetics slightly differently and to create a different health status for both those individuals. Right. Another thing I think is interesting is I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and but one of the first things I was looking at was MS, multiple sclerosis, because I had you know, difficulty walking and symptoms list, which kind of yeah. fit, fits with that at first. As you were talking about earlier, you're talking about the list of symptoms is a diagnosis, but it can be very difficult be- to judge based on symptoms. I think there's a lot of these diseases that we have in categories, which they often have a list of very similar symptoms and the differential diagnosis isn't being made in a lot of cases. And it's, it's kind of a fuzzy line at the moment. Did you think, like, instead of basically uh, kind of my, my argumentation here is, here is like, potentially I have something which is chronic fatigue slash MS, right? Or I had that. And then yeah. someone else has yeah. maybe 100% MS as the classification. And there's all these mixes out there, but they're getting split into different categories kind of based on well, who looks at it. One of the things that I'm observing is that, so I have a therapeutic lifestyle clinic where we treat people with chronic health problems. And they can be mental health problems, physical problems. The big thing that they have to do is agree to die that lifestyle is all I'm going to manipulate for them. And what I find is I'm less and less interested on the names of their diseases and much more interested on mm. diagnosing all their environmental factors, addressing those. And I'll use the same types of interventions across many disease states. And I find that, to me, the most important thing I need to know is diagnosing their diet and lifestyle choices and exposures, what they're doing, and helping them address those. My young students are intrigued that my approach is so different to what they were taught and appears to be so remarkably effective. Although making the diagnosis is far less important than understanding the person's diet and lifestyle issues and diagnosing that. Right. That's very interesting because then you can look at the weakest areas of someone's lifestyle if you have a a blueprint for a more ideal lifestyle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and you have to work with them, work with their family, have them evolve this collaboratively. So if you're in my trial, you have to evolve boom in in one fell swoop to get in the trial. But if you're in my clinic, we negotiate with people to adapt these concepts at the pace they're willing to live with. Yeah, great. Compliance can be an issue with a lot of these diets. So just going over your walls protocol in a, a bit more detail, there's some things you want to remove. Could you, you talk quickly about the items you want to remove from the diet and why? What are the foods that, at least in Westernized society, most likely to cause abnormal immune response? And that top one is gluten-containing grains, the wheat, rye, barley, the most common, but many of the ancient grains have gluten, so it's, it's not, you want to reduce those gluten grains. Because the gluten uh, and dairy overlap, we also take away all the dairy proteins. We take out dairy as well. And because the third most common is eggs, we take out eggs. And then in my book, I give people directions how to take out the next level of problems if that more simple approach doesn't resolve things for them. Yeah. Is that just nightshades or is it um, other items as well? Does it get more complex than that? That's the top three. And then it's a much more sophisticated conversation about what else to consider. 
you know, and, I, and I'm really very reluctant. I, some of the paleo authors give people a very detailed elimination diet. Yeah. But from my perspective, you're just increasing the risk of micronutrient deficiency when you'd have an excellent probability that just taking those three out would have a dramatic favorable impact. Now, if it doesn't, yes, you, can, you may need to go through a more comprehensive elimination diet in a stepwise fashion. That's the approach that I'm more comfortable with. Yeah. Uh, and I've had marvelous, marvelous success. Yeah. Have you, have you seen, because you emphasize a heavy, I mean, it's pretty much a heavy intake of micronutrients in terms of, you know, the variety. And the rationale for that, I'm a very simplistic thinker. So when I look at the literature, I see the traditional societies still eating the traditional foods, traditional lifestyle eat radically different things in each locale. But what's consistent is that there's an extraordinary micronutrient density of vitamins, minerals, fats per calorie. There's a huge variety in what the percent of fat, protein, and carb is across the various localities. So my interpretation of that data is that our mitochondria are actually quite flexible. They can burn sugar, fat, or uh, protein, and get energy for us to run the chemistry of life. But, boys, it appears that our ancestors identified what foods would give you the highest micronutrient density. Mm. Sometimes it was going to be a fat-based diet. Sometimes it was a protein-based diet. Sometimes it's a carbohydrate-based diet. So I then went around and use science to help me figure out what were these key micronutrients I could track as I designed my diet. And so now we have 36 that we track. And then I designed a diet using foods that I could get through agricultural means that wouldn't increase my inflammation, but would give me the various antibiotics, vitamins, minerals, fats that science says my brains need. Once I redid my diet like that, it was dramatic. Within three months, my fatigue was gone, and I clearly was beginning to recover. Yeah. About your recovery, one of the things I've heard you mention before is nutritional reserve and how at the beginning, you would have something like a 36-hour crash window if you weren't continuing to take in you know, the amount of nutrients that you were yeah. currently doing. You know, now in retrospect, I think in the first two years, maybe even three years of my recovery, as I was improving it, you know, I still hadn't had enough recovery yet so that when I traveled, because I was now having enough energy to travel again, that my vegetable intake dropped. And then my fatigue would come back, my brain fog would come back, and I'd be craving greens. Uh, so I come home to this huge, huge salad bowl of greens, which I'd immediately scarf and begin feeling better. Just out of interest, how long would it take you to feel better? About uh, 24 hours. Okay, great. And the next morning. So actually probably 12, because I'd eat that as I got home that night for my flight. And then by morning, my thinking was more clear and my energy was back up. And then I began to travel with a head of cabbage because that travels easily. You don't need to refrigerate it. And I would just consume that. Uh, and that seemed to work pretty well. Now I'm well enough that I don't need to travel with food. So if my vegetable consumption dips for a couple of days or a weekend, that doesn't bother me now. 
again, because I, I think I've so flooded my cells with nutrition yeah. that they just have a lot more reserve than they had before. That, that, that's great. So, I mean, well, for the first 20 years, 30 years of your life, you didn't, you didn't have uh, multiple sclerosis. Do you think eventually if you build up enough nutritional reserve, you could, you know, walk around for a week and I imagine that in your 20s, like most people, you weren't eating an ideal diet and you could eat that kind of thing? Or do you think there's no way to, like, once you've had some kind of condition, you, you really have to be uh, very compliant you know, the, with this for the rest of your life if you want to um, keep symptoms at bay? Those are great questions. My observation from a clinical trial is if you deviate from the protocol, you lose ground. Right. And it sort of makes sense that if you go back to giving yourself substandard nutritional support, things will begin to decline. You'll end up with more rapid aging and probably more uh, diffuse symptoms. All right. In, in terms of how much we're talking about here, if we think about someone who's got uh, a typical modern diet and someone else who's got a typical kind of paleo diet, how much more vegetables are they eating every day? Well, you know, when people come back in, and I'm trying to give this to you from memory here, I, I believe at baseline, typical fruit and vegetable intake was one and a half servings a day. At 12 months, the typical intake was seven and a half. And most of our people were women. We just had a couple of guys, so they were really doing an extraordinary amount of fruits and vegetables. My nutrition colleagues told me that in the nutrition science world, if you get someone to shift their vegetable intake just one serving up a day, that's considered a phenomenal success. And for us to have shifted the vegetable intake from one and a half up six more cups, she was thinking it was unheard of. No one had been able to do that previously. Yeah, yeah that's pretty impressive. There's more benefits for the, the people on these trials than uh, the average, I guess. In terms of recommended daily amounts, you're far exceeding the nutrition values of recommended daily amounts. What do you think about the recommended daily amounts of vitamins and, and so on? Do you think they're sufficient for everyone or sufficient for some people? Or uh, Likely not, because they're designed to prevent you from going into an acutely disease state associated with that particular vitamin or mineral. We'll take, for example, vitamin C. They set a level to prevent you from acquiring scurvy, which is vitamin C deficiency. But we don't know what level is required for optimal health, which might be 50% more or 500% more. What I think might be a more valid way of thinking about this would be if we looked at what were the RDIs that people hit who are eating traditional food, traditional diets, traditional societies, that likely those societies over time had figured out how to get their micronutrients for optimal health. And when we use those values, the intakes are two to tenfold above the RDAs, depending on what particular nutrient is. And actually, that, that was one of my goals, was to get my uh, nutritional analysis pattern look like a hunter-gatherer society. So I wanted to hit two to tenfold. And what we hit was two to eight and a half-fold. Right, right. So well, I was, I, we were very pleased. Yeah. And so from a, the safety standpoint, your pilot study, one of the ideas behind that, I guess, was to see like if you're doing a thousand percent RDA. 
Well, we, we get as high as eight and a half times RDA from food. And again, that it looks very much like the hunter-gatherer societies. The biggest side effect was if you're overweight or obese, you lost weight without being hungry and got back to a healthy body weight. Right. I mean, there was no toxic issues or at all with any of the no toxic vitamins issues that we found or anything. Some people had some of the vitamins had some GI upsets, some nausea. We told them if there's anything that seemed to bother you, just skip it. They did, and we had a few people who couldn't eat as many greens as we advocated, so they just titrated down to what their tummies would agree to. Uh huh. But that I guess that would be down to the the biome and the ability to to process. Uh, well, it, that's right. It, it's their uh, microbiome. It's the efficiency of their own particular enzymes. So there's probably a combination of who you've got living in the bowels and what was the efficiency of the set of enzymes that you have uh, that you were born with. It would seem that some people do not metabolize sulfur quite as well. So they need either more sulfur or less sulfur in their diet, depending on uh, how their enzymes are working. Right. I think some people have, I mean, I think I'm, I have a partial issue with this, is detoxification of sulfur. So too much sulfur can cause issues because you have to detoxify it as well. We're all unique. And I stress that in my book that we're all unique. I've got a public health message out here that will be good for everyone, but I certainly can't guarantee it will be good for an individual. So they have to really pay attention to how well they feel on this and work with their personal doc because they definitely may need things adjusted because of their unique DNA and unique health issues. Great. So which types of biomarkers are you looking at when you're tracking the status in your clinical trials? Okay. So uh, I want to divide it into two questions. In my clinical practice, mm. uh, we don't do any fancy functional medicine testing. We do things that primary care doctors feel very comfortable using. Great. Lipids, glucose, hemoglobin A1C, B12, folate reactive proteins, homocysteine levels. Yeah. Primary care docs should feel comfortable looking at that stuff. Now, in my clinical trial, we're doing things just to see how they change over time, and I'm not changing my protocol based on these results. We're just trying to learn the mechanisms of what's going on. So we measure things like who and what's growing in the poop, so microbiome analysis, what heavy metals are showing up in the urine. So that's the toxicology. And that's done with a very mild chelator. And then I do a Nutri-Eval, which is by Genova Diagnostic, which uh, gives me a detailed look at the vitamin and antioxidant levels within the cell. A really nice look at the generation of ATP through the mitochondrial electron transport chain, how well that's working. I get a nice look at the fats and how the fat metabolism is working, making the long-chain fatty acids, arachidonic acid, cosexanoic acid, icosapetanoic acid. To get lots of detail that we'll be able to use to write up our papers and project why we have these very lovely results that we're seeing. So that's, that's fun research stuff. Yeah. It is not what I'm doing in clinic. In clinic, what I'm finding is careful history, thoughtful exam, yeah. and some very simple labs that primary care docs can get. 
you're enabling the patient by using language that they can talk to with other people easily. Yeah. Yeah. We want to address diet and lifestyle. We want to have some guidance. So I, I do use these labs that you need to think about functional medicine things, but you don't have to spend tens of thousands of dollars right. for functional medicine assessments. You could just address all the diet and lifestyle stuff very thoughtfully, very comprehensively, get someone to do you know a thoughtful history for you. And I would say there's probably a 90% probability that your health will steadily improve as a consequence of those actions. And how would you, you, you would be tracking that based on symptoms? The most sensitive tool that we have is something called the Medical Symptoms Questionnaire, which I've got in my book. It's a detailed list of questions asking about how your eyes and ears and nose, it goes through your entire organ system. And you can get scores from zero to, I think, almost 300 points if everything is not working. So that's a very nice way to look at is the chemistry of all of your organs working well or is there some level of problem? And that's the best number for us to track with how well people are doing and how well we're doing for them. Great, great. In terms of, like you mentioned some things which are, you know, everyone accepts today as chronic headache pains. For, yeah. for example, would you consider that as a condition that's a, that's a symptom that shouldn't be there? Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. And again, I have many, many people with chronic headache pains that we get them to address the diet and lifestyle yeah. issues mm. and those headaches finally resolve. Yeah. Amongst all of the other the blood tests you've mentioned, and you said like, you know, a lot of them used because it's easier to talk with uh, primary care doctors. Do any of those stand out as interesting? You know, you mentioned like the symptoms list is actually the most interesting here. But are any of it like, you know, you mentioned inflammation markers, homocysteine? Well, uh, homocysteine CRP are acutely, I like to see those improve. That tells me there's too much inflammation or the brain can't metabolize B vitamins very well. And then the hemoglobin A1C lets me know how many carbs they're eating, how much insulin they have to use, and trying to get that number lower and lower. That takes a little bit more time, but again, that's a very helpful intervention to follow. I agree. So CRP, would that be real? Like as, as far as I understand, that isn't really related so much to autoimmunity. That would be more related to like dietary well, inflammation. And again, I predict that in 10 more years, we're going to overlap that together. More and more disease states we're recognizing if your C-reactor protein is elevated, you have too much inflammation in the body. Yeah. And that is a predictor for worse heart disease, worse risk for stroke, more pain with your fibromyalgia. Mm. Uh, so it's an independent risk factor. And if we get people on you know, nine cups of vegetables a day, get rid of the gluten and dairy, that CRP typically falls. Great, great. I guess because your uh, protocol is so nutritional-based, in terms of the tests you're doing, I think it's mostly Nutrival and some blood plasma tests for vitamins. What interesting things have you seen in terms of nutritional status? Have you seen any patterns in the people you get where it is showing up that their nutrient status is very low and or with different patterns. I spoke recently with uh, William J. Walsh. He's worked uh, with brain neurology for many years and he found some nutritional deficiencies with driving or often like 
contributing to symptoms of schizophrenia and other neural diseases and correcting those would, would help them. So I'm just wondering to what extent you might have seen some kind of patterns where specific nutrients are showing up a lot. Those analyses are ongoing right now. I, I can't comment yet. Okay, okay. Great. If you were looking at, because we've spoken a lot about mitochondrial and how what the status of those are, if you wanted to understand from a more testing standpoint, what was the status of the mitochondria? Like, are there any particular tests you would look at, this Nutribel test or any others, which would be useful to understand uh, what's going on with the mitochondria? The Nutribel is certainly the one that I would use. Several of these functional labs have tests similar to the Nutribel that can give you insights into how well the enzymes are performing at every step of the electron transport chain and the Krebs cycle. That can be very helpful to follow that over time and then provide nutritional support for any enzymatic steps that appear to be blocked. And I would just, you know, order the NutriVal and follow those guides along. But again, I remind your listeners that one can do that if they've had diet and lifestyle interventions very effectively for a year and haven't gotten where they want to be. Yeah. These tests are extraordinarily expensive if you follow them over time. A thousand month uh, to $1,500 test, that's not cheap. And from my experience at the VA, frankly, I don't think it's clinically necessary for the vast majority of people. Right. For you, it's more interesting to basically do a project where I say, I'm going to use this protocol for six months and see what happens in terms of symptoms rather than, you know, doing tests to, to figure it out. That would be my preference. Yeah. I would certainly still work with your primary care doc, that basic primary care testing can help guide and refine things a bit. But I don't think there's rarely do you need to spend twenty to thirty thousand dollars on testing to understand the mechanisms of why diet and lifestyle will make you better. And that's what functional medicine testing does. It gives you the mechanisms to explain why you should make these interventions and why they're going to help you. Mm. Or you could just make all those interventions to begin with and see if that will help. And then if it doesn't then, yes, you may need to spend a lot more money for a very thoughtful functional medicine eval. But, man, let's get a lot of money to burn. Right. I'll just do diet and lifestyle first. It sounds like a lot of these tests are, you don't see the value in them for most cases. It's better to spend some time and some money on the actual protocol as a test rather than spend the money on these tests, which are currently uh, a lot more expensive than you say, like the primary care tests, which are a lot more general. Yeah, you could easily spend $30,000. If you run down the functional medicine yeah. testing to understand everything that's potentially biochemically wrong with you, I think it's not money well spent right, right. For, the, for the vast majority of folks. Okay. Uh, one thing we didn't look at, but I've heard you mention before, is one of the issues you see with the mitochondria is membrane fluidity. Uh, what is the issue around that? Well... Let's see, it was probably in the 70s. We had a public health campaign against butter. We're all supposed to use margarine with a lot of trans fat in it. Uh, and we flipped out the beef tallow, deep fryers, and fast food and lard for vegetable oil, which dramatically increases the risk of trans fats. So our trans fat intake soared. We all thought that was a good thing for us. Now we realize trans fats are very rigid 
they stop the fluidity of the membranes. They're very, they accelerate aging, accelerate the risk for heart disease, cancer, dementia, and other neurodegenerative processes. Somehow, after World War II, we developed the fat theory for clogging of the arteries. And then fat became demonized, and so we switched to this low-fat diet. But on a low-fat diet, you don't get enough of the fats that our membranes need to keep things nice and flexible and keep things fluid. You have to be careful to not have the bad fats, which are trans fats, vegetable oils that are heated, and you want to avoid those. Okay, great, great. Have you looked at... I think it's called lipid exchange, where where, you, where you're trying to purposefully take in more fats and more fats of different types in order to promote. Yeah, yeah. is that something you're you figured into your diet in terms of the fat intake? We talked about fat at great length in the book. Yeah, yeah. As I put people into ketosis, we definitely increase the fats and have opinions about which fats they should be eating. Absolutely. Okay. Another thing you mentioned earlier is supplements versus food. I know you're a proponent more of food, but you did take supplements to start with. I took supplements and they didn't, they slowed my decline. They did not lead to recovery. When they added more supplements from the functional medicine folks, that leveled things out. And when I redid my diet is when I began to recover. So supplements targeted in a very, very thoughtful way may be useful, but it's very difficult to have a big public health statement saying, these are the supplements you ought to take. Right, right. It really should be individualized based on that person's story and their current health status. Right. And you mentioned safety of supplements. What was your concern? Well, most of them are made in China now, so I think people (laughs) need to remember that. And many of the supplements are made by genetically modified bacteria. They need to think about that as well. Well, I've lived in China and I've um, read the news a lot there, so I can attest to there's some issues there. <laughs> they may be useful, but you really have to think carefully about how useful they are. Right. And in, in terms of economics, I mean, I know some of the extremes you go to. I think you actually grow some of the food in your back garden. Yep. Uh, could you talk a little yeah, bit about I, the economics of, you know, you're a proponent of organics like well, versus conventional? Like, So in, the, well, in terms of economics uh, of food... Is it a lot more expensive? So, and... I'm going to vigorously disagree with this. Okay. So I think the problem is that people want someone else to cook the food. When you have someone else cook the food, it's going to cost you more versus you buying the ingredients and you cooking it yourself. And we have a number of that lovely articles on New York Times that compare that. Now you go to a fast food restaurant, they cook the food versus you buy it and make it yourself. It's always cheaper to buy it yourself. Now, if you want to go organic, grass-fed, which does have more health benefits, yes, that does become more expensive. But you can eat vegetables, clean protein, ditch the gluten, sugar, processed foods for less if you'll cook it at home than if you are getting either fast food or something that corporate America has cooked for you. I like to see people go organic and get grass-fed if their monetary means allows that. You can still recover just eating more vegetables in the pattern that I described 
it'll take you longer to clear all the toxins than if you're able to go grass-fed or organic. Right. That, that's very, is it, it's, it's not yet proven by research. Is that something you're going to look at, the split of conventional? Well, that, that'll versus... be great. That'll be a wonderful project for us to do. We'll see if we can get someone to pay for it. Yeah. yeah I bet you've got many projects in, in your head that you'd like to do soon. What do you think will happen in this whole area in the next five or 10 years in the area of like testing and biomarkers and what interesting things would you like to be able to like test? I think the public is going to race out rapidly ahead, probably the medical field. I think it will be interesting to see ultimately that we could do rapid genetic testing and tell you which enzymes that you have are less effective and perhaps which vitamins you need to stress, which foods to stress, which foods to avoid. That would be very interesting. And likely there will be a time that we can do that. And I won't be surprised it would just be, you know, a swish gargle and spit it out into a cup. And you'll get a readout of uh, recommended dietary choices, recommended vitamin supplements. Right. Do you think that would be available within the next 10 years? Or uh, I have no idea. Yeah. And I have to warn you, I've got clinic in two minutes, so okay. uh, we should be wrapping this up. Yeah, Nelly there. Great. Thanks for your time. What comes next in your research? What are your next steps uh, you're looking at? As a matter of fact, tomorrow I'll be talking with someone about crowdfunding project that we're thinking about throwing up for crowdfunding, so we'll, I'll maybe learn about that. I'm submitting a grant to the MS Society. And that's why I'm feeling a lot of time pressure today, because that's due here in the next uh, couple of days. And this fall, it's very exciting to know that the National MS Society here in the U.S. is convening a programming meeting to talk about research priorities and programming for uh, diet, lifestyle, and wellness. Okay. And they asked me to be one of their experts. So uh, I was very excited about that. Yeah. I thought that was... Uh, well, that's, that's a big milestone for you. That's, you know, that's yeah. kind of uh, where you started all this. Yeah. yeah, that'll be very exciting. Well, that's great to hear. Well, so if you were going to track some biometrics of your own on a, on a routine basis, or, or do you track any biometrics? I like to know where my vitamin D is. Yeah. I like my B vitamin levels at the top quartile of the reference range. And in general, I'm looking for nutrient biomarkers I prefer they're in the top quartile. Okay. Toxic. Are you using Nutrival or, or some other test for that? Or? Oh, no, that's too expensive. I just use the straight primary care labs mm-hmm. that folks get for those vitamin levels. Oh, so it's plasma levels or oh, mm-hmm. RBC. Okay, great. All right, good luck with your meeting. Okay. All right. Have Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. To get more of the Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. 
Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.